Hello and welcome to episode 15 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. This is the sixth and final installment in our series on Confederate General James Longstreet. So to pick up where we left off, in the wilderness in May of 1864, Longstreet suffered a grievous throat and shoulder wound. He recuperated until October of that year and then he resumed command of the Confederate First Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia. This unit was now manning the defensive trenches surrounding Richmond, uh, which would be in place through the winter until April of 1865. During this trench warfare period in early 1865, a proposal was floated between General uh, Ord of the Union Army and Longstreet to initiate a peace conference using Louise Longstreet and her old friend Julia Grant as intermediaries. General Grant, following orders from President Lincoln, put a stop to this idea, though. But finally, on April the 1st, after months of stalemate in the trenches around Richmond and Petersburg, the Union forces broke through following the Battle of Five Forks. The fall of Richmond came the next day on April the 2nd, at which time Longstreet now had command of both the 1st and the 3rd Corps, because A.P. Hill had just been killed that morning. A.P. Hill was a huge loss to Lee and to Longstreet, but there was no time for them to mourn because the Confederate Army was now evacuating the city and destroying all remaining supplies. As the Confederates evacuated their way west, their biggest problem again was food. They expected to find rations at Amelia Courthouse, which was about 40 miles west of Richmond, but they found none there when they arrived. So then they were forced to uh, send out foraging parties into the countryside to find food again. They continued west towards Appomattox Court, uh, Station, and at some point General P- Pendleton and a group of senior uh, Army officers decided that surrender was inevitable. They knew Lee respected Longstreet, and none of them had the courage to bro- broach the subject with Lee themselves, so they asked Longstreet to do it for them. This turned out to be ironic because Pendleton would later become a lost cause advocate and one of Longstreet's biggest critics in future years. As the Confederates approached Appomattox Station, Grant sent a message to Lee stating in part, quote, The results of the last week must convince you of the hopelessness of further resistance on the part of the Army of Northern Virginia in this struggle, unquote. Lee handed the note to Longstreet, who passed it back to Lee and said, quote, Not yet, unquote. Finally, at Appomattox Station on the railroad, Union Cavalry Commander General George Armstrong Custer uh, overran the supply train at at Appomattox Station, which was full of food for Lee's army. You may recall we discussed this in the Custer episodes. Well, this was Lee's last hope to feed his hungry army, and now that hope was gone. This sealed the fate of the Confederacy. Then Custer did a strange and unexpected thing. He rode into the Confederate lines under a flag of truce and was escorted to Longstreet. We didn't discuss this in the Custer episodes because I thought it would be more interesting to wait until the Longstreet series to present this narrative. Now, when the two generals met, Custer said, quote, In the name of General Sheridan, I demand the unconditional surrender of this army, unquote. Longstreet glared back at the 25-year-old boy general and said nothing, until Custer repeated his words. 
Then he barked back to Custer, quote, I am not the commander of this army, and if I were, I would not surrender to General Sheridan, unquote. Meanwhile, Longstreet ordered Porter Alexander to select a battle line for his divisions to face the Union forces present at Appomattox. Alexander complied, and as he proudly told Longstreet after the war in a letter, quote, It was the last line of battle of the Army of Northern Virginia ever formed, and I remember every detail of it, unquote. Then something remarkable and shocking happened. Just before the surrender proceedings at Appomattox Courthouse, Union Commander Grant saw Longstreet just outside the McLean house. When he saw Longstreet, he walked toward his former comrade, grabbed both his hands, and then embraced him. Grant offered a cigar and jokingly said, quote, Pete, let us have another game of brag to recall the old days which were so pleasant to us all, unquote. Finally, the Union Commander departed, and the commission began its work. The surrender agreement was signed that evening. Now, according to various accounts, it was Longstreet who persuaded Lee that Grant would offer generous surrender terms at Appomattox and not unconditional surrender terms as Grant's name or nickname would suggest. This is exactly what Grant proceeded to do in accordance with Abraham Lincoln's instructions which he shared uh, with Grant during their last meeting. Quote, Let them surrender and go home. They will not take up arms again. Let them all go, officers and all. Let them have their horses to plow with, and, if you like, their guns to shoot crows with. Treat them liberally. We want these people to return their allegiance and submit to the laws. Therefore, I say, give them the most liberal and honorable terms. Unquote. John Avalon writes, Grant's famously generous terms of surrender to Robert E. Lee at Appomattox were a direct expression of Lincoln's wishes and how to achieve the art of peace. The next morning, Lee prepared to depart for Richmond to confront his fate. When Lee came to Longstreet, he warmly embraced him. Then turning to Tom Goree of Longstreet's staff, who stood by his side, he admonished Quote, Captain, I am going to put my old warhorse under your charge. I want you to take good care of him. Unquote. With that said, Lee soon left, riding away on Traveler. He and Longstreet never saw each other again. On April the 13th, 1865, Longstreet reached Lynchburg, Virginia. Here his wife, Louise, and Garland and Robert Lee welcomed their weary, crippled soldier home. He was unable to use his right arm and spoke with a rasp from, the wound, from his wound in the wilderness. He was expected to live no more than eight years because of his wounds, but instead he lived on for nearly four more decades. When time came to weigh amnesty for Confederate officers, Grant put in a strong recommendation for Longstreet. However, it was vetoed by President Andrew Johnson at the time, who said of the Southern General, quote, there are three persons of the South who can never receive amnesty, Mr. Davis, General Lee, and yourself. You have given the Union cause too much trouble, unquote.
James Longstreet had vague thoughts of moving to Texas after the war, but instead he settled in New Orleans, where several other ex-Confederate generals had relocated, including P.G.T. Beauregard, John Bell Hood, Simon Bolivar Buckner, and John Magruder. Longstreet soon accepted partnership in a cotton brokerage firm, which meant travel throughout the South in 1866 to secure cotton for the firm. In 1867, he also assumed the presidency of a newly created insurance company in New Orleans. Both jobs provided much-needed income, and he readily managed the concerns of both uh, businesses well. In 1867, as radical Republicans passed Reconstruction Acts that divided the former Confederate states into military districts, Longstreet was asked for his opinion on the matter. Longstreet publicly and privately had urged moderation, forbearance, and submission. In a letter to a newspaper, he wrote, quote, We are a conquered people. Southerners must recognize this fact fairly and squarely. There is but one course left for wise men to pursue, and that is to accept the terms that are now offered by the conquerors, unquote. He also wrote, The only course of action for Southerners is, quote, to comply with the requirements of the recent congressional legislation, let us accept the terms as we, we are in duty bound to do, and if there is a lack of good faith, let it be upon others, unquote. Then he wrote a second letter reaffirming his position, adding, quote, My politics is to save the little that is left for us and to go to work to improve that little as best we can, unquote. He wrote other letters, including a letter supporting black suffrage and planned to make a public avowal of his cooperation with the black Republicans. Before doing this, though, he sought advice from old friends and business partners who warned him against this position. John Bell Hood said, they will crucify you. Longstreet even traveled to Oxford, Mississippi to seek the advice of his old uncle Augustus, who was a very savvy politician and states' rights proponent since the nullification crisis of 1832. Uncle Gus remarked, It will ruin you, son, if you publish it. Undeterred by these warnings, Longstreet proceeded to publish his support of Republicans in the New York Times on June 8th of 1867. This was reprinted in newspapers across the nation. The response was immediate. He was praised by the northern press and vilified by the southern newspapers. In their indignation and fury, Southerners saw Longstreet's argument for cooperation with the party that had emancipated the slaves and destroyed large portions of the region as heresy and called him a traitor. His political naivete cost him friends and business. He fled New Orleans, both to remove himself from the Fuhrer and his wife and children from the dangers of yellow fever and cholera that were, that were going in the region at that point. He moved his family now to Lynchburg, Virginia, and traveled throughout the North for the next two years. He frequented New York City and Washington and saw his old friend friend Grant often. Finally, in 1868, Congress passed a law granting pardons and restoring political rights to a number of Confederate officers, including Longstreet. He endorsed Grant's campaign for presidency and was in Washington to witness the inauguration of his longtime and best friend, Ulysses S. Grant, on March 4, 1869. President Grant nominated Longstreet for the position of Surveyor of Customs 
for the Port of New Orleans, which was easily confirmed by the Senate. He needed the job and the income, but back in New Orleans, many white Southerners thought Longstreet had committed the unpardonable sin by becoming a Republican and advocating reconciliation. Soon, Longstreet's Confederate war record was being rewritten. His military reputation and stature among Southerners never recovered. The lost cause myth was starting to coalesce, and religion served as the cornerstone of the myth as the cause became righteous. The living became heroes, the fallen became martyrs. Longstreet and those like him were even likened to Judas Iscariot. Longstreet and his family endured this social ostracism in New Orleans remarkably and confronted the consequences of his actions while he became entwined in the volatile politics of Louisiana. In 1870, he was appointed adjutant general of the state militia in Louisiana, a 5,000-man force of white and black troops. He was also appointed to president of a newly organized railroad, the New Orleans and Northeastern Railroad. It was estimated that by year's end, he was earning between $10,000 and $15,000 a year from his three uh, positions, a very substantial sum for the times. In 1873, politics in Louisiana had reached a melting point as Reconstruction was being violently rejected by the white population. The elections of that year were marked by enormous fraud, resulting in claims of victory by both Republicans and Democrats. This led to violence, and on the evening of September 14th, 8,400 so-called White League members advanced as an armed force on the State House. Does this remind you of something? Opposing them were 3,600 police and black militia troops under the command of Longstreet. The rebels pulled Longstreet from his horse and opened fire. He was hit by a spent bullet and taken to the rear as a prisoner as, the, as his troops and the police fled. Many were killed, and the White League held the center of New Orleans for a time. On, on Grant's instructions, federal troops arrived and restored order, arresting the White League leaders and releasing Longstreet. From Jeffrey Wirt, Longstreet's role in the so-called White League fight resulted in more denunciation and vilifications. He had led mostly black troops against former Confederate soldiers, which to white Southerners was another indication of his betrayal of the cause. A White League officer claimed later that, quote, it was the greatest, with greatest difficulty that I prevented the men from firing, particularly at Longstreet, unquote. Shortly after the battle, he was relieved of duty with the militia, ending his active participation in the cesspool of Louisiana politics. Concern for his health and his family's welfare convinced Longstreet to leave New Orleans and settle back in Georgia. They had two more children for a total of ten, five of whom lived to adulthood. In 1875, the Longstreets settled in Gainesville, Georgia, they were treated, treated as northern scalawags in Gainesville, but that did not deter them. He acquired farmland there and a, three, a small three-story hotel. 
During this time, he also traveled back to New Orleans frequently, serving as an administrator of the college that is now called Tulane University. Notice we did finally get to the education connection here. During one visit to the city, he converted to Catholicism, which was another act of heresy in the overwhelmingly Protestant South. His conversion was sincere, however, and he remained a Catholic until his death. In May of 1880, President Rutherford B. Hayes nominated Longstreet as U.S. Minister to Turkey, which was also called the Ottoman Empire at the time. He delayed his departure until the election of James A. Garfield in the fall and then sailed off on November the 1st, arriving in Istanbul, then called Constantinople, in mid-December. This was the same James Garfield who had given General Thomas the nickname Rock of Chickamauga. Longstreet didn't particularly enjoy his time in Turkey because he was unable to bring along his wife and children. Also, this post turned out to be a big money-losing venture for him. This is because he was expected to entertain local guests at his personal expense. And Turkish sultans have very high expectations in terms of entertainment and food, and he was never reimbursed for his expenses. He asked to be relieved of his post, and in April of 1881, he was granted a 60-day leave, during which time he toured Europe and returned home in the late spring. Once back in the U.S., President Garfield appointed him to the position of United States Marshal for Georgia. He assumed the office on July the 1st, and the next day Garfield was assassinated by a deranged lawyer named Charles Guiteau. Chester A. Arthur assumed the presidency. As a Republican U.S. Marshal, Longstreet was constantly dogged by his political opponents in Georgia, the Democrats. He appointed his son Garland Deputy Marshal, who was accused by Democrats as dissolute and incompetent. Longstreet eventually was asked to resign, which began his semi-retirement in 1885. The next few years were some of his most pleasurable. He operated his hotel and managed his farm, raising turkeys and tending to grapes in his vineyard. I don't suppose he was ever accused of poisoning the wine in his hotel, do you? Well, in 1889, uh, he had a very difficult year. A fire destroyed his house and all the contents, including all of his war relics and his library and papers. Also that same year, James's wife, uh, Louise, fell ill and died on December 19th of 1889. She had been his devoted wife for 40 years, had borne him 10 children, grieved deeply over the loss of five of them, had endured months of separation from her husband, and had followed him wherever he had asked. To allay his personal grief over his wife's passing, Longstreet immersed himself in the writing of his memoirs. However, since fire had consumed all his papers, he was forced to start from scratch, and, unlike Grant and Porter Alexander, his memory of events was not especially sharp. In fact, he made many factual errors in his accounts, which have been pointed out by modern historians as well as Porter Alexander. During this time, Longstreet enjoyed attending Confederate and Union ceremonies and reunions. 
Despite their political differences, the veteran soldiers retained their respect and affection for the general. Longstreet was asked to speak at many reunions, both north and south. He was met with rapturous applause when he spoke, especially at the Union events, and was especially appreciated for his remembrances of Grant before and after the war. Then he got remarried. Quote, Old men get lonely and must have company, unquote, Longstreet once remarked. And to the dismay of his children, the old widower married Helen Dorch in the governor's mansion in Atlanta on September the 8th, 1897. She was a native of Georgia, a devout Catholic, and served as the assistant state librarian in Atlanta at the time of their marriage. She was 34 years old when they married, and although the children never cared for her, she remained a devoted wife to Longstreet and became his most ardent defender after his death. She outlived Longstreet by 58 years and finally died in 1962, 100 years after the Battle of Antietam. The newlyweds relocated to Washington, D.C., and Longstreet secured an appointment as the U.S. Commissioner of Railroads, an appointment he received from Republican President William McKinley, a former Union officer. In 1902, he and Porter Alexander attended the 100th anniversary of the West Point Academy, and he saw his former rebel commander uh, of the cavalry, Joseph Wheeler, wearing a blue uniform. Wheeler had served in the Spanish-American War in 1898 and was dressed in the blue uniform of, the US, of a U.S. Army general. Longstreet remarked, quote, I hope that all, Almighty God takes me before he does you, for I want to be within the gates of hell to hear Jubal Early cuss you in that blue uniform, unquote. Within two years, Longstreet would indeed be summoned. His health was failing, and pain from his rheumatism never ceased. On the morning of January the 2nd of, 18, of 1904, Longstreet's old wound from the wilderness opened up, causing a hemorrhage. Three of his five living children were there, along with Helen, when he died, six days short of his uh, 83rd birthday. He was buried on January the 6th at Alta Vista Cemetery in Gainesville, Georgia. But the controversy surrounding his life and the lost cause myth that followed him continue to this day. Now tune in for our next episode where we will finally begin our discussion of George H. Thomas. George H. Thomas.